0: So, um, during Jesus' ministry, when he was traveling one day with his disciples, kind of on a road from, you know, one ministry point to another, he kind of interrupts the, the journey to ask his disciples a couple really significant questions. And the first one he asks is kind of more of an analytical one. Who do people say that I am? Now, you've been around the crowds, you've probably been talking with them after I've been preaching how would you read the congregation who do you think people say that i am we might ask the same question today in fact people are asking the same question we see different surveys so in a recent survey of americans we know that about 50 percent of americans say they believe jesus is god at least in some way depending on what that means for the person um, in, in the same survey about a third say that he was just an important religious leader and the rest just aren't sure what to make of jesus So Jesus is asked this first question, and the disciples give a number of answers, but then Jesus kind of turns it and moves it from the analytical to the personal. He looks directly at them, and he says, but who do you say that I am? And that really is the question. It's valuable for us to be analytical. It's valuable for us to know the different opinions and different views. But at the very end, the only question that really matters for your own well-being is this personal one. Who do you say that Jesus is? It is impossible to have a more significant question than that, at least according to the Bible. The Bible says that your life will be defined by how you answer that one question. That how you answer the question of who Jesus is, not just with your words but with your life, will define your life or your death for all eternity. So as we are exploring these questions, in some ways, this is the most significant one. Who is Jesus? Is Jesus the Son of God? Or is he a myth? Or is he just a religious leader? Now, last week we kind of explored when we were thinking about Scripture. We were trying to do it in a more kind of analytical way. Um, trying to like weigh up the the different reasons for believing or not believing and and coming to a conclusion. Today, I don't want to be as analytical. I want us to kind of see this from a more personal direction. Specifically, through the eyes of the Apostle Paul. So, Paul is... um, probably the person we know the most about other than Jesus from the New Testament time. Half of the book of Acts is devoted to his life, to his ministry, and not only that, but we have many of his letters that he wrote. In fact, much of the New Testament are his letters, and in those letters he tells us a fair amount about himself. So we know a lot about Paul, and what makes Paul a valuable kind of window, his testimony is significant, is while on one hand he is right around the time of jesus i mean he lived during Jesus' time when he wrote his letters He was in the 50s He's like the gospel writers this is present day this is not the time of legend and yet at the same time unlike the writers of the gospel paul was not one of jesus's disciples when jesus was alive in fact he was more the very opposite This is significant because at least some skeptics will say, hey, of course we can't really trust the the Gospels because the Gospels are biased. These people wanted to believe in Jesus, so they're willing to kind of bend their information to make it fit. Now, last week we explored why I think that is incredibly unlikely, why we really can find the Gospels trustworthy. But even if you were to take that kind of skeptical position, you can't say the same thing about Paul. I mean, we, we saw at the very beginning of our passage, it says, Paul, Saul, by the way, Saul is just the Hebrew word for, for Paul. You know, like He has a Jewish name and a Greek name. They're interchangeable. Most of the time I'm going to be calling him Paul, but it's the same person. It says, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Still is pointing back to a few verses before in chapter 8, where it talks about Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them prison. Just imagine what, what his life was all about. You have, this is between 30 and 33 A.D., right after Jesus has ascended. You have families who, will, who have just become believers. They've been baptized. They gathered together to eat, to celebrate this, this newfound faith in Jesus and there is a knock on the door. And, and they open the door and there is Paul and there are guards and almost without a word these guards just grab the adults and even if the adults ask for mercy, say, hey, our kids are right here would you please not take us away? They take them away, they imprison them and many of them are executed and Saul's the one who's driving it. And after months upon months of doing that when Jerusalem is becoming a place that few Christians want to stay, they're scattering everywhere while Paul is not satisfied with that. So he then takes himself to the high priest, makes sure that he gets kind of warrants for arrest, and now he's heading off to Damascus so that in Damascus he can find Christians and stomp them out. So Paul, we might say, was not a disciple of Jesus. He was an anti-disciple. He has no motivation, no desire to propagate, to continue, to further the Christian cause. He is trying to stop it completely. And it's worth kind of stepping back for a moment to ask uh, why that is. So what we know about Saul from his early life, ages 6 and 7, was probably he, was, he grew up briefly in Tarsus, but then his parents sent him away to study in Jerusalem because his parents so wanted him to be someone who understood the law, to understood the Old Testament. And so for years he studied there, and he was... Uh, He was intelligent, he was driven, at a young age he was able to get this prestigious internship with Gamaliel, who was a big name, and he was a rising star amongst the Pharisees. Now you might have heard the term Pharisees before, we see it in in the New Testament frequently in the Gospels. And, And the Pharisees were a group of people who were committed to trying to reform the people of God of Israel because they believed that Israel had lost their way. They were committed to understanding how to obey God's word better, to being devoted to to following God's word faithfully. They believed the way to blessing, the way for Israel to experience God's fullness of salvation was for them to be faithful in obeying the law as carefully as possible. And that's Paul. Paul is passionate about following the law. In fact, in one place in Philippians, he, he speaks of himself in this way, he says, I was a Pharisee in relationship to the law, and I was blameless in my observance of it. The law was everything for him in his relationship to God. Now here's the thing, and, and this is going to start getting us to where we want to go in terms of thinking through who Jesus is. If, if if Jesus was simply a religious leader, which as some people claim, if he was simply someone who said, i am come to teach you to love God and to love others better, then Paul would have had zero problem with Jesus. Because that's what he was about, too. He believed in the love of God. He believed in loving God and loving others because that's what the law commanded. Now, the reason that Paul was trying to stomp out Christianity was because he saw in Jesus something that was much more radical and much more threatening to him than just a simple religious leader. And and the way to understand that, I think, can be found in one of the events in Jesus' life that kind of encapsulates why Paul would be so against Jesus. You might be familiar with the story, it's in the Gospels. So Jesus one time is, is speaking in front of a, a really crowded group of people. It's inside a house and there are four people whose friend is paralyzed and they want to carry him into Jesus so Jesus can heal him, but they can't. So they end up actually getting on the roof, digging through the roof. They lower this paralyzed man down on the stretcher and Jesus sees him right before them. It's this kind of crazy moment. But it gets even crazier because when Jesus looks at this man and he looks with compassion and kindness, he does what no one expects. He says to him, Son, your sins are forgiven. And the response is immediate. We're told that the Pharisees, again, this is the same group that Paul is a part of, the Pharisees are outraged by what they perceive to be blasphemy. They say, how can he say that only God can forgive sins? And they're right about that last part. See, the word sin literally means an offense against God. To sin is to wrong God. That's the word sin, what it means. And that means the number of people who are able to forgive sin is a very short list. I mean, think about it. Say, you know, after the service, Brent and I are talking and some person comes down the aisle and just whops Brent like in the face and just like, you know, hits him and says, I hate the mandolin, or something like that, and you know, like, and, and, and so then we start talking about what just is happening, we're talking with that person, and about 20 minutes later, imagine I said, brother, I forgive you. That would make no sense. I, I wasn't wrong, right? Like, for me to forgive that person, I can't do that. Brent is the one who is wrong. Brent is the one who would need to forgive, right? And so, if someone says, your sins, your wrongs against God are forgiven, there's only one person who can say that, and it's God. So you can see why the Pharisees are outraged, but notice Jesus doesn't backpedal in any way. Jesus doesn't say, oh, I didn't really mean it, or, I, you know, here's what's going on. No, he, he doesn't deny the fact that only God can forgive sins. He actually says, he's, hey, you know what, so that you can know that I have authority to do this, Here's what I'm going to do. And then he heals the paralytic to show that he has the right to forgive sins. And so for those who have eyes to see, in this moment, Jesus is showing something incredibly, utterly remarkable. He is saying, by this event, I am more connected to God than you can possibly imagine. Later on, when he's talking to his disciples, he says, don't you understand, if you see me, you see God the Father. He is saying, I am the Son of God. And more than that, when he's, he's not only saying that, when he's saying that he has the power to forgive, he's also saying that if you want to be right with God, it's not just about obeying the law. I'm the one who can make you right with God. I'm the one who has the power to forgive. I am the way to God. I am the way, the truth, the life. He says no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is saying you don't come to God through the law, you come to God through me. Do you see why this would have incensed Paul? Who is this man to say that he is God? Who is this man to claim that he can replace the law? The law is everything. The law is my life. This is what defines me. And so you can understand why Paul would be so passionate and believe he's being so faithful to God by doing everything he can to stop this cult of following this man who somehow claimed he could be God. There is only one God, and clearly it's not him. And so that's what he does for week after week, for month after month, until the day that he comes to Damascus. So, I think it's helpful to just recognize that this day that I'm about to describe was normal up until this point. It's not an unusual thing for Paul to travel from town to town. Again, he's from Tarsus in Jerusalem. And and the, the, the journey to Damascus was not a particularly long one. It's not that he would be unusually tired. And he wasn't even by himself. Remember, he was coming with guards to find people. He had a group with him. Everything about that day was normal until it very much wasn't. If you've seen action movies, maybe you've seen, uh, sometimes you know how, like if if they're trying to, The soldiers are trying to stop kidnappers. They throw in like this flash grenade. You know what I'm talking about? The idea is that the grenade goes off and it is so bright that people are stunned and can't see for a little bit. I imagine that what's described here in this chapter is like that. That in this moment from normalcy, suddenly there was this flash grenade of light that was just blinding, except it didn't stop. It just lasted and lasted and was so overwhelming that everyone there in that moment just fell immediately to the ground, overwhelmed and and terrified. And so you see Paul, face in the ground, hand over his eyes, overwhelmed, and then as this brightness still is just flooding him so that he can't even know what's going on, he hears a voice. And the voice says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Just imagine for a moment what, what it would be like if that were you. Imagine, you know, later after church, you're going outside, there's snow on the ground, and suddenly this light that is so bright you can't even keep your eyes open and you fall, and you hear you being addressed by name and being asked, why are you persecuting him? So how Paul responds, there, you, you see this kind of sense of vulnerability where, where he, he knows that this is somehow God, but he doesn't know what's going on. He says, who are you, Lord? Clearly you are God, but you are saying I am persecuting you. Who are you? And, and the response is I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. I am Jesus. Can you imagine just for a moment what it must have been like to be Paul in that moment? Jesus, the one you were certain was dead. Jesus, the one that you had given your life to stopping his followers. Jesus, is speaking to you right now. In that moment, three things would have been clear to you. One, it would have been clear that Jesus is not dead, that he is very, very much alive. And second, and horrifyingly, you would have realized that all you had been doing for the last three years was utterly wrong. And in a way that probably you wouldn't fully understand, you would have realized that what Jesus said about himself when he was making himself to be equal to God was absolutely true. And that Jesus really is somehow God's Son. You know, if you if you look at the letters that Paul writes some twenty years after, he looks back on this moment and has a very clear understanding of what happened, that he saw the Son of God. He writes to the Galatian church, for example. Here's one of his things, the way that he evaluates. This is his first-hand testimony that we have. He says, You have heard about my former way of life in Judaism. I intensely persecuted God's church, and I tried to destroy it. I advanced in Judaism beyond my contemporaries among my people because I was so zealous for the traditions of my ancestors But then, God was pleased to reveal his son. He writes to the Corinthian church something similar. He talks about how after Jesus had died, he rose again and he appeared to 500 of his followers. And then he writes, Last of all, as to one who was born at the wrong time, Jesus also appeared to me. For all of his life, from this point on, he holds to this testimony that he has seen the risen Son of God. And just consider what that says. This is a man who had zero motivation, zero desire to believe this. If there was any way he could have denied this, he would. And yet, in this moment, it is an historical fact. We know that for the next many decades, Saul doesn't just Paul doesn't just stop persecuting the Christians, that would be historically interesting enough. No, he gives every ounce of his life, of his existence to making everyone he possibly can know that Jesus is the Son of God. He is willing to undergo beatings, he is willing to undergo imprisonment, he is willing to undergo shipwreck, he doesn't have a family, he doesn't have a home, and he is executed for it and his, his description of what took place never changes, I saw the risen Son of God. It's interesting, in the last couple centuries, there have been some who realize that this is such a provocative and compelling piece of evidence that they try to discount it by coming up with other explanations. that, That Paul was having a seizure. That Paul was mentally ill, but he has people with him who see the same thing. This doesn't make sense. This is only the kind of thing you say if you just want to deny the reality that Jesus actually showed himself to Paul and that Paul's testimony can be relied on i mean what other explanation is there but that jesus the son of god appeared to paul now in this moment he is not yet to that point of of knowing what his life in the future is about right now he has his face down to the ground and can you just imagine how horrifying this must be for him Maybe even as he is hearing Jesus say, I am Jesus whom you, are, whom you are persecuting, he starts thinking about the last few years. He thinks about the cries for mercy of people that he believed for the sake of what was good, he would bring harm to. And now he realizes the whole time he was bringing harm to the very people of God. This, this light that was bringing truth was, was devastating him. You know, later on he is going to speak about light as one of his favorite images. So when he writes to the Corinthian church, he spoke of God who said, "...let light shine of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ." And you know when he's saying that God has shown in us to give us the knowledge of the glory of Jesus with light, he has to be thinking of that moment when God shone light into his eyes and to his heart and he saw the glory of Jesus. But right now in this moment, that light is not warm and friendly and delightful for him. It is devastating to him. And he is terrified. But then he hears what I imagine must have been one of the most beautiful words to him in hindsight. It's just three letters, and in Greek actually it's two. It's the word, but. You would think if you were Paul, when Jesus says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, to expect a therefore after that. You are persecuting me, therefore you are done for. Therefore you are going to be judged. Therefore it's over for you. But that's not what Jesus does. What does Jesus say? He says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. I wonder if, if Paul understands in the moment the significance of this. I wonder if in that moment he's remembering what Jesus showed when he healed the paralytic, that there is hope for him. So this blinding light dissipates and Paul opens his eyes, but he still can't see. He's blind. And so his, his companions walk with him, bringing him into Damascus. And for three days, we're told, he remains in utter darkness. For three days, he goes without eating, without drinking, perhaps even without sleeping. He is a broken man. This, this former person that was so clear about things is dead. And he doesn't know how to pick up the pieces. And I imagine during those three days he also has a lot of time for thinking and processing. Remember, as a Pharisee, he is someone who has probably memorized, if not all of the Old Testament, almost all of it. And so during those three days when he can't even see anything, how he must have been just going over the law that he so loved and seeing it for the first time in a different light. And understanding that That when God promised Abraham I will make of your descendant a blessing to many nations he was talking about Jesus when God told Moses there will be a prophet like you who will bring my word he was talking about Jesus when God told David that I will give you a descendant a son whose kingdom will have no end and he will be my son he was talking about Jesus And not just that, but even even the theme that keeps on recurring in the Old Testament of how the righteous suffer. So, So, David in Psalm 22 says, A company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. Does that sound familiar to you? Written 1,000 years before Jesus. And in this psalm, David cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? David, without even realizing it, was talking about Jesus. And as Paul thinks of the Old Testament, he realizes also this promise of hope, this promise of hope that lies beyond suffering of punishment, this promise of restoration, was God promising the resurrection that would happen through Jesus. For the first time in his life, he who had been an expert in the law actually understood that the point of everything in the law, of everything in the Old Testament, was Jesus. But I don't think it really came together for him until The knock at the door. He is told in a vision that a man is going to come, and this man comes. Ananias knocks on the door, and he is terrified. You know he's terrified because we see him actually kind of speaking when Jesus, in a vision, tells Ananias, Go, I care about Saul, go to him. Ananias is like, Are you sure? This man has done so much. And Jesus says, Go. And can you imagine what it must have been like for Saul as As Ananias comes in, a man he has never met, a man he still can't see. And Ananias comes to him and, and laying hands on him, hands not to harm him, but hands to show love, he says, Brother Saul. I mean, that's just beautiful right there, that he would call him Brother. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road, by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. In this moment, Paul would have understood exactly what's going on. That Jesus is saying to him through this fellow believer, son, your sins are forgiven. And so, he is baptized. He is brought in to the community of believers. He has a faith in Christ that will define him. And for the rest of his life, he will give his life, as we see even here, to declaring that Jesus is the Son of God in whom there is life. So, so we come to the same question that we were asking before. Paul's Eyes could suddenly see. He was blind before. The scales fell from his eyes. He saw things. And if we were to ask him, who do you say that Jesus is? His testimony is unequivocal He is the Son of God. Just look at my life, he might say. For the rest of his life, he went through all sorts of suffering, but he didn't complain. He actually says, one time when he's in prison, he says, it is my joy because you know what? I get to tell people about Jesus. Right now, I am chained to two people. They are a captive audience. Isn't it great that they hear about Jesus? His whole life is defined by his faith in the Son of God. In fact, he says in Galatians, one of my favorite verses, I have been crucified with Christ, and the life that I live is no longer mine. But I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave his life for me. Do you hear what he's saying? I am convinced that Jesus is the Son of God. And I am convinced that he loves me and he gave his life for me. Who do people say that Jesus is? We, we can analyze this, we can weigh the evidence, and there's value in doing that. There's value like we did last week in considering how, tr- how much we can trust the Gospels, how much we can trust what Paul has to say. But in the end, we can't stay in the analytical. In the end, this is an inherently personal question that will define you. Who do you say that Jesus is? How do you make sense of Paul's testimony where he says, I once was this, but now I have seen Jesus and my whole life is changed. He has this testimony. The gospel writers have this testimony. Who do you though say that Jesus is? I'll tell you what when I am convinced of. I am convinced that the Bible can be trusted. I am convinced that Jesus is the Son of God and not just that he is the Son of God, but he is the Son of God who loves me And he loves you. And he has given himself so that you, no matter what you have done, might be forgiven. And I'm convinced that until you and I actually grasp this, we will always be lost. But that's not the question I'm asking. I'm asking you, who do you say that Jesus is? How your life answers that question will be the defining thing of your life. So I ask you to join with me in just kind of um, responding in prayer, asking if if you don't know where you're at right now in this, that God would show you. And for those of us who have trusted in Christ, maybe we can even spend some time in prayer asking that God would deepen our faith, confessing where we haven't trusted him. And in a moment's time, I will lead us in prayer. Would you please join with me in a time of silent prayer? Father, you know, um, you know what is true, even when we see things poorly. And so, Father, um, we, those of us who have come to rec- come to believe that Jesus is your Son, we acknowledge before you that our faith is not what your Son deserves. Uh, that so often we turn elsewhere we rely on ourselves when we should be relying on Jesus your son father we ask that you would deepen our faith that you would convince us ever more deeply of the forgiveness we have in Christ and that like Paul our lives would be an ongoing testimony to the reality of what Jesus has done for us And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here, from the same passage that we read earlier, um, but a little bit later on, from Colossians 1, we're told that God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in his Son, and through his Son to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Brothers and sisters, through the blood of Christ, your sins are forgiven and you are at peace with God. Thanks be to God.